Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, welcome back to Tipping Pitches. What? Is, sorry, what, what is this? What are we doing again? Is this it's a, a baseball is this podcast a, about a baseball. baseball, which doesn't exist anymore? <laughs> yeah, it's been a it's been a while since we have done this podcast. Um, as we as we noted on Twitter, um, we have been taking a break over the last couple of weeks, um, given the the nationwide protests that have been going on over police brutality following the the murders of George Floyd, um, Breonna Taylor, countless others uh, who have died at the hands of the police. Um, And we just, we didn't really feel like baseball was the most important thing to be talking about. Um, It still isn't now, but we, uh, we've got, we've got a lot on our minds and we think that there's a, there's actually a lot of relating we can do to what's going on in the world right now to, um, to baseball and, and, and its history. This podcast has never been essential by any means, and we've never claimed it to be. Um, it's never really been particularly important, but over the last couple of weeks, it was, it was actively unimportant to focus on baseball and focus on the petty desires of billionaire owners and everything, which is what we do a lot here. So I don't know. I, I encourage everyone to tune out to this if this is still not what they want to hear and to to, to to focus in on other stuff right now. Um, but you and I have been doing a lot of thinking and talking in the last couple of weeks about moments throughout baseball history that this moment parallels with or dovetails with or reminds us of. And one of those things is um, the 2015 game between the Baltimore Orioles and the Chicago White Sox in Baltimore after the murder of Freddie Gray in police custody and uh, they ended up playing that game as I'm sure many of our listeners listening to the show right now will know they ended up playing that game in front of no fans which is weirdly resonant with how they're going to try to play baseball this year too so there's just a lot of elements of that game that we find uh, MLB fucked up on that we find are really interesting to look at five years later five years removed from the fact in a different political climate um, and in a different just global world um, with the pandemic going on. So we are going to talk to, we have a, we have a packed episode here. We're going to talk to Micah Johnson, who was uh, the second baseman for the Chicago White Sox at the time. So the visiting team, but um, Micah played in that game. He knows how surreal it felt. He, um, since retiring from baseball uh, has become a a really incredible fine artist um, doing really cool work there. And in the last, you know, couple weeks. And so he's been doing a lot of art that is, depicting just the experience of black lives and black lives matter movement right now and art, um, you know, paintings of George Floyd. And, uh, so, so it was really great to talk to Micah. We hope you find that conversation, um, as fascinating as we did. And then, uh, later in the show, we are going to get to just kind of a, a, a labor catch up, which is maybe the primary function of this podcast at this point in time. Um, <laughs> over the last year, it's just been kind of us, catching up on the bullshit that MLB owners are doing. Um, Before we do all of that, uh, we're going to go to our conversation with Micah in just a second. But I am Bobby Wagner. I am Alex Baisley. And you're listening to Tipping Pitches. 
Okay, Alex, we are joined by Micah Johnson, former second baseman for the White Sox, Dodgers, Braves, current fine artist, current great Twitter follow. Uh, Micah, thanks so much for joining us, man. We appreciate it. No, yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, so we've been we've been thinking a lot in the last couple of weeks about how baseball would be responding to the current moment of national protests around police brutality and racial inequity and equality and systemic racism. Um, and Alex and I couldn't help but think back to the the moment in 2015 after the murder of Freddie Gray in Baltimore and the protests going on in Baltimore about MLB's response to that because we had baseball at that time in a way that we don't right now for a myriad of reasons, most of them because of owner's selfishness. Um, but we want to talk to you because you were on the opposing team at the time. You were on the visiting team at the time. So I, I want to just kind of get your sense from a general background perspective. What was it like in the locker room among your teammates for you personally um, waiting it out that Monday and Tuesday and then playing on that Wednesday in late April when MLB decided to play that game in front of no fans in Baltimore? Yeah, it was pretty wild. Um, I think we flew in Sunday night. We were there three nights without playing. Um, and it was kind of surreal. Like you saw the stuff that was happening outside. You saw the, the people walking around with like machine guns and stuff, uh, the National Guard or whatever it was. But um, yeah, it was pretty surreal, especially uh, you couldn't really go anywhere. So kind of just stuck in the hotel room. And I think Manfred came in Wednesday or Tuesday, I can't remember. And like, or Tuesday probably it was like we're going to play tomorrow with no fans. And obviously that game, you know, we did play with no fans. It was, it was silly, but you know we did it. But can't ever say baseball does the most logical thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have I have Manfred's quote actually from from the MLB dot com story afterwards where. He said, we feel like we made the decision that would provide us the greatest possible security in terms of protecting the fans, players, the umpires, everybody involved in the game. Um, I guess when you say that it was silly to you, what, what, are, you, what are you thinking there? Like what, what were those conversations that you guys were having? Did you want to play? Did you not want to play? Um, did you think that it sh- they should find a way to reschedule it or play it in a different ballpark? Hey, yeah, it was just all weird because... Um like you're in the middle of the season, so you don't really think like this game, like these games are like they're not that big a deal. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it was like, what are we doing sitting here for like two or three days just to play this one game without fans? But I get it with like scheduling and stuff. You want you gotta get games in. But looking back on it and now, you know, they're talking about playing games with no fans now. It's just it just wasn't the same. You know? It truly is not the same. And the competitiveness and the stuff, all that, it's not going to be the same. You feed off the people around you, you feed off the people booing you, and you feed off the people cheering you. So, playing with no fans, like you're not the quality of play is just not going to be the same. I, I think it was, it was really interesting to see, and it's especially interesting looking back on it now, amid the the protests that have been going on across the country, um, and you have plenty of athletes from from baseball to all sports um, who are actually speaking out on on what's going on um, and the the game in Baltimore and I don't think it was really framed this way at the time um, there it wasn't really a question of does baseball um, 
do they sit this out uh, because out of respect for the protest or whatever? It was it was more just an idea of like safety. Um, and and looking back on it now, it feels like this this moment when baseball just kind of closed itself off from the outside world, right? Because it was like you gotta you gotta play the games, you gotta you know it's a scheduling issue, whatever. Um, and it feels like that climate is so much different now that if if the, something like this happened in 2020, like I feel like baseball would get eviscerated for that for trying to just kind of make this decision to. Um, to go ahead and just play a game without fans and completely ignore what's going on uh, in the outside world were were these like conversations that that you guys were like having in the in the locker room at all? Um, like were were you guys talking about like what was going on in Baltimore at the time, or was it pretty much just kind of like keeping your head down? Yeah, back then it was just keeping your head down. You didn't really think too much about it. You know, as sad as that seems, like you didn't. It wasn't. It wasn't like it is now, where people are speaking up and people are, you know, like, like now it's cool because now you got guys saying like, like Lou Williams, for example, saying like, why, well, if we go back and play right now, it's going to be a distraction to a bigger issue. Like, there's been so much progress being made right now, in a span of what, like a couple of weeks, that sports would be a distraction. Like I truly believe like God had this plan of like COVID and all this, like to like really shut everything down and to like kind of like reevaluate what was going on, right? Like we're putting so much emphasis on sports and all this other stuff that really is not important. So like I can't imagine um sport if we had sports right now, you can't really imagine or distractions like that, that the movements that are taking place now would can would be as powerful. So like back then you didn't have that. You just like you just kept like you just kept your head down, really. Um, so, which I find so interesting that among all the stuff that's happening, all the great progress and protests and people coming together and people like having these awakenings and stuff, how MLB can continue to send proposal after proposal and media slander and media slander, like in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of people dying, in the middle of black guys getting murdered on national television like you're arguing about a schedule like you're arguing about money that like guys just want to get paid for playing and they're just like that's it like like that's crazy to me that's tone deaf completely <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean yeah the in a lot of ways, the phrase tone deaf was invented for what Major League Baseball does on a daily basis, but especially in this moment. Um, it, it, yeah, it's like they're causing a distraction right now. Like, you got all these fans on Twitter, like, saying, like, you know, yelling at the players, you know, at the owners. And it's like, yeah. like, A, the players are not greedy. They just want to get paid for being wanting to, like, the games they play, plain and simple. Like, like the fact of the matter is you got guys owning teams for fun. Like, this isn't like a this is how they made their money, right? Like you're that rich that you can buy a sports team, right? And now we're arguing over not wanting to pay pay people for the job they do. Um, And, you know, leaking and stuff like this. And it's just, it's a distraction, dude. Like you don't see that's going on in the NBA. The NBA is completely focused on what's going on in the world, right? And that's why the NBA is the leader right now. Yeah. Yeah. Those are conversations that players are having, right? Feeling uncomfortable about, uh, about bringing the season back. A guy like Kyrie Irving, 
Um, it was just like <laughs> we basketball is just not a priority at this point, right? How like, cool is that, right? <laughs> like it's yeah. so cool, and people are using it as an opportunity to like bring up old shit about Kyrie thinking the earth is flat or whatever. So that's not what we're talking about right now. Kyrie's yeah. <laughs> making a lot of really good points. And, and you mentioned Lou Williams and other, and other players. Like I saw Dwight Howard today coming out and backing him up. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm curious to hear your perspective on this, Micah, because it's something that I've been thinking about a lot in the last couple of weeks. And it's something that you're kind of alluding to about how in 2015, it didn't feel this way. But how do you think, how do you see going forward, I guess in baseball, but in sports in general, how are players going to balance coming from a generation that is much more outspoken about their politics publicly, whether that be social media or in their friend groups um, than previous generations and being in a sport like MLB, which doesn't reward that kind of thing because you know, you are someone who's very outspoken about your politics as well. And the things that you believe in um, whether that be through art or online and it's just not the type of thing that's been rewarded in MLB up until this point. Do you see that conversation kind of shifting at all or no? Yeah. Yeah. I think once you start getting these players, um, the thing about MLB or sports in general, until you make a name for yourself on the field, no one really cares what you have to say, right? You could be the most interesting human on planet earth. And unless you're putting up numbers, nobody's really going to pay attention to you. Um, but I think with baseball, you know, it's such a, you know, they cater to a certain demographic, right? Like, why would we go worry about um, the feelings of the guy who lives in, you know, this part of the city when we got this demographic that we've been catering to for all these years? So let's not really speak up on anything, right? Um, and the thing about MLB is they have, they do have a, do an amazing job with like their diversity and inclusion and all the programs they do with RBI, right? Like, they do a really good job with like Tony Regans and like Corey Smith and Del Matthews. Like that whole group is doing a really good job. It's not their fault that, you know, you people get this perception of MLB being kind of like closed minded. It's more of like just a branding and marketing, simple PR type thing, you know, um, with the younger players coming to superstardom, like Tim Anderson and Blake Snell and guys like that you're going to start seeing guys be more outspoken, right? Like it's a new generation, which is going to be cool to see. I think. I think it's also interesting, um, especially given a lot of the labor negotiations that are going on right now. I think that has really opened up a lane for players to be mm-hmm. incredibly outspoken. And even if it's, even if it's an issue that kind of relates directly to them, I feel like I can't think of a time in my relatively short life watching baseball where like so many players were speaking up in unison uh, about, about something like this. And I think it also just kind of helps um, delineate like who holds the power in the game. And, uh, and so I'm interested to see just kind of how that will, that will open up more lanes for players, especially on social media to just feel comfortable speaking out, especially when, uh, you kind of have this like group mentality that like that's okay. Yeah, it should be interesting. Like especially, um, especially with this, these negotiations being so public, right? Like, why can't this just be a private conversation? You know what I mean? Like, why you have literally black guys dying on national television pretty regu- regularly these days? You have millions of people with the coronavirus, hundreds of thousands dead, right? And you're leaking 
negotiations. Like that shouldn't ever be public. That should just be, you know, we'll figure it out. If we come to resolution, we'll announce it. Right. Like these players like are fed up, like they're getting made out to be like these bad guys. And they were just going to, they were, they were willing to just fight for their, you know, for the money that they want privately. But now like only thing that you hear about is pandemic, the racial injustice in these MLB negotiations. Right. And I think that hopefully fans are starting to side with the players a little bit more now. Like I think Tony Clark did a good job with a good statement last night. Like, look, dude, we just want to play. Like just tell us when and where, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, that very simple messaging, I think was very effective. Um, it, it is in a way, and forgive me for this, um, this strained analog here, but it is sort of like an analog to in 2015 when everything was going on outside the stadium, outside Camden Yards, but just baseball was happening inside like nothing was going on. I was watching the game, the broadcast earlier this morning, and they mentioned it up top. And it's obviously two white, two older white announcers. They mention it up top. They, they say why the game's being played with no fans. And then they just power through. And it's kind of exactly the same thing that's happening right now with the negotiations. MLB is just powering through and saying, you know, to hell with everything going on in the world. We need to get this done right now. Um, and I, I don't know. It's, um, it's a shame. But, I, Mike, I want to know if, like, if given some time to think back on how that happened in 2015 and... um how baseball kind of missed an opportunity to advance its conversation um, around racial injustice, especially because you look back at the last week and a lot of these statements from teams were not good to put it, frankly, they were just not good enough and teams are not doing enough. What, what can baseball do differently this time around than they did in 2015 where they just kind of power through powered through and ignored everything going on? Yeah, that's one thing that's like I sit back and think about 2015. And I'm kind of like embarrassed, like for not even speaking up, like just get being in that baseball where I'm just so focused on like baseball at that time, you know, like trying to make it on the team, like stay up in the big leagues, whatever. So like that does like personally, I get like this embarrassment. But um, like now, like like I feel embarrassed. So like now I'm speaking up, right? But like MLB had a chance to speak up, and I really think like the most powerful statement. Uh, you know, Tampa Bay Rays did a good job, but um, like the people aren't looking for statements from these teams or anything like that. They're just looking for like acknowledgement of the issues, right? Like these are legitimately the issues. If you, you know, like don't try to like sugarcoat what it is. Um, I, I, what can they do? I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Is it too late? <laughs> like, yeah. Like, I mean, that's an interesting question. Yeah. Like, did they miss the chance to again connect? with the general population of people that are sitting here thinking like white or black, like damn, like I, we do have a big problem, you know, like I think that might've, might be too late. Like you were, you, you're talking, you're arguing over billions of dollars and yeah, it's weird. I, don't, I think, I don't know what they could do moving forward. I mean, it, you bring up an interesting point too. I mean, you talk about kind of being, embarrassed and not not speaking up at the time but yeah also i gotta that, say that, we that, should provide context that this was your first season you had just been called up it was like a month yeah ago. like two weeks <laughs> or, yeah exactly so like you what is the, what is the incentive there for you to to speak up? i mean it's that balancing act of like do i say something about this issue that i believe in and then potentially like you know put at stake 
my my livelihood, right? Like my my job, especially when you're a rookie. Um, I would guess just uh, having talked with former players and um, and read about this, right? That like you really kind of don't want to cause that commotion and to like go against the grain uh, in such a way would it would certainly ruffle some some feathers. And it's almost like, whereas in 2015, you kind of would have needed the cover of like uh, a, a team, like making a statement or whatever, like this time around players didn't even wait. Right. Like they didn't, they were not waiting for, for teams to come out and acknowledge this. Um, And so it would be interesting again, like we talked about, like if this were to happen today, this year, this week, I think it would have, they would have gone about it completely differently. The thing about the thing about baseball that's different than any other sport is, well, it's definitely different than NBA in the sense that the fans look to the players in the NBA for answers and responses. Right, the players are their individual brand. The teams don't make the players like you know, like Kyrie can go from you know playing in Cleveland to Brooklyn, right? Not major cities, you know, and but everybody still knows who Kyrie Irving is. Yasiel Puig goes from LA to Cincinnati, like. Everyone's saying, where's Yasiel Puig, right? So that, that's the thing about the MLB is very team-specific and um, like the region-specific. So like the fact that the players are finally you know, making themselves their individual brands by speaking out, speaking you know, their personal opinions, I think it's pretty powerful, man. And I think it's, it's good for, for the players because now they're, they're, people are identifying with them specifically instead of, you know, Cody Bellinger with the LA Dodgers. I just, you know what I mean? So I think, I think it's cool because now like we referenced Lou Williams, right? Like we didn't say Lou Williams from, you know, so-and-so team It's just, we know Lou Williams. Right. So I think that's finally, this is a good opportunity for players to speak up and use their platform at which they're doing, you know? And it's cool too, because even with all this time off, you, a lot of these guys are finding, you know, ways to just be individualistic in a way. Right. And it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's definitely a um, an aligning of things going on in the world for them to feel like they can, they can and should be speaking out individualistically. They're they're not with their team, so they're not being asked in the team context. Yeah. They're not, you know, they're not being asked by team specific reporters. That kind of thing. Um, I I you know I also want to add, for, just for context and for a caveat, 2015. This is all going on and. The conversation around athlete protest is is not where it is today in 2020. This is pre Kaepernick. This is obviously pre Bruce Maxwell, and we see now both of those guys are not even in their league. So maybe the conversation window has shifted. But you know, like like you're saying, you're you're a young guy who doesn't necessarily know that he has the infrastructure to speak out on this sort of thing. Um, it, it, it it's hard to say, but I don't I like I don't know if that's going to change going forward. Um. For, for I, think it, I, think it, I think it will because I think it will because I think the the general population is saying you know they, they this isn't about the flag this isn't about the country this is about you know the, like you know, what, exactly what Colin Kaepernick was saying the entire time right but you know people were just rah 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 so hype off of you know a Trump rally or something or you know a tweet he sent out like rah 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 this is America right but I think the conversation is changing now because people are saying yeah well shit, I guess there are like, you know, issues, you know, like, thank God for camera phones. Like, <laughs> like, like seriously, cause the conversation is changing now, you know, but it's no different than what Colin Kaepernick was saying the entire time. Like 
very eloquently every single time. So I think, I think it will change, man, because you don't want to be that guy who's on the outside looking in, making fun of people or criticizing people publicly about their stance when every single day a new video gets released of a black guy being abused by the cops or, or some, some lady yelling at a black guy or something like that. You know what I mean? So I think that it is going to change, man. This really does feel like a completely different uh, moment in time. Yeah. Well, I also, I mean, I think that I'm also playing as I'm paying as close attention to the, to the people who are saying stuff as the like players who aren't, you know, like Mm -hmm. the players who are staying silent during this time, like that, that speaks volumes as well. Um, and, and, and it's the people who say that they haven't had enough time to quote unquote, educate themselves on the subject. Yeah. Yeah. I think that uh, not to say that I think, players need to be incredibly politically outspoken. Um, but, you know, we always advocate for players to, um, to, to be for baseball players to kind of be more front and center to actually like create and cultivate those brands. And I think we've started to see that um, in the, even in the, just the last year. Or so it's really started to expand. And so I think that you're right in that sense of it will, I hopefully start to change whether or not players become super political. I think kind of knowing that they have that voice and that audience, um, right, knowing right, that like right. ultimately fans are going to be on their, their side at the end of the day. Um, and I feel like this can only, I don't know, add to that. Right. Right. I agree. I think that it's good for the players, man, like marketing dollars, anything like it's, if, as long as they can build their individual brand, whatever they, their personal views are, Expressing those is it's cool, man. Like, I think it's I think it's a cool time. I really do. Micah, how do you think the the media handled it at that time, and how do you think they would handle it differently now? Do you think they would do a better job, a worse job? Um, what did you feel like at the time? All of the questions that were being asked to you and your teammates were centered in the right place, or um, were they just no, like, no? But I don't blame them, dude. It was just this is how it was. They, like they, they weren't, yeah they weren't trying to change the world. They were just trying to get a story about baseball, you know, like back then it was legitimately like, like, you know, like that, that girl, that lady said like more Ingram, whatever, like shut up and dribble. Like that was it. You know, I don't blame the media. It wasn't like they were again, tone deaf to what was going on. It's just, that was their job. And I think mm-hmm. now obviously it'd be a lot different. Like a lot. Now people feel like it's their duty to, change something right like now people feel the power each individual feels the power that they can affect change in somebody right and that's powerful when one person feels like if they just affect or change one person that's when you get a movement and i think a lot of people feel that responsibility as individuals right now versus back then even though it was only five years ago what was um i'm i'm curious just kind of Purely from, you know, as we talk about how everything is not limited to baseball, I want to ask purely from a baseball perspective, like just what it was like playing in a stadium with no fans, like that, that atmosphere, like, did it throw you off when you're standing in the batter's box? Like that has to be such an, I mean, you know, it's the kind of thing that had literally never happened before in baseball history. It's not an environment you prepare yourself at all. Yeah. I mean, that's why everybody talks about like these games with no fans. Like it's hard, and like baseball is you feed off that, you know. And there's never been a time in our lives that we played in front of nobody, 
right? Like you've always had a mom there or a dad there or something, you know, like somebody was cheering for somebody at some, you know, at some point, you know? So it's, it alters, it definitely alters performances, you know, like it's like, uh, obviously players or athletes are inherently competitive, but at the same time, how many are really competing in front of nobody? Right. So it's, it was definitely different. Like it is definitely not the optimal environment to play under. It's such a weird artifact of baseball history that that broadcast exists in full. If you go on MLB's YouTube page, I encourage anyone who's listening to this, all of our listeners to go and just check out the first, even the, just the first inning where they intro the game and it's just dead silent. And I'm talking like at, at times you could hear people's iPhone going off on the broadcast. You could hear the ding from a text message. And it's just something I've never felt before. You could hear when someone fouls a pitch back, you could hear it hit the seats. <laughs> it's just such a strange thing to watch. And I don't know. Like, I don't know if that's going to be all of our experience in 2020 going forward or the fake crowd noise or what, but I can't, I can't even imagine what it was like for you being able to hear what XYZ guy in right field standing outside Camden Yards was yelling at you. Yeah, it's definitely different, man. I think that, I mean, you got these guys who are judged and their financial futures are based on the performance, having to play under circumstances like that. And you still don't want to pay them the, that money that they are, you know, they just want the pay of playing. Yet when arbitration comes up or something comes up and you look back on that year, are those numbers going to have asterisks to them? Are you going to cut them some slack when negotiations occur? No. So, you know, it's, it, you're not going to perform at your best under those conditions, man. I, I truly don't. I truly believe that, especially when guys are at home in their garage training right now for, for, a, for a professional season. I know. Right. Yeah, the the amount of guys that we've talked to who are just like, I'm just out in my backyard, man. I'm out at the local Back, park. That's what I'm saying. I'm shocked by that. I, I call my friends and I'm like, I'm like what are you doing? Like, I'm, I got some dumbbells. So you want these guys to go play for less money for... Um, you want to negotiate contracts off, the, off this year and you want to have them training at home. You know, like imagine the potential for injury and all that. Like, I was... Yeah, it's weird. So, you outside of having played in one of the uh, strangest baseball games of the last uh, decade or century or whatever, um, you're also a really proficient artist. Um, you you tweet about your the art that you do. You um, your art is up for sale. Uh, people can can see it. Can you talk a little bit? Um, about like how that started, how that how you got interested in that. If it was something that kind of started percolating after your career, or if it's if it's long been like a passion of yours. No, it started in, in 2016. I got traded to the Dodgers um, in spring training. Dave Roberts did this thing where he called all the new guys up to the front, you know, asking a bunch of questions. And um, I was towards the end of you know end of it. There was a guy a day or something, and so I caught the trend that whatever guys said they would like to do. He ended up, you know, pairing them with a veteran or two, and they had to go do that activity, which was fishing or whatever it was. Um, and I had played piano my whole life, and I was like, I'm not going to say I play piano up here because I'm sure Dave would have, you know, I guess the Dodgers they have so much money they could have brought like a Steinway in there and had me play in front of the team. <laughs> so I was like, this is this might be weird, um, and I don't, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to do that. So for some reason, man, honestly, I have no idea. I just said I like to paint. 
And I had, you know, I painted to the extent of like what you guys may have painted or like, you know, what everybody does paints, you know, but I don't, I didn't never paint it. And, uh, he was like, you should, you have to do a, a portrait of Maury Wills by it presented to the team by the end of spring training. And that was like the first like it's legit homework. painting I did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that started it all. That's, that's incredible. What, what did some other guys do? Oh, like, you know, like fishing or like, uh, I like to shoot guns or stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And they would pair you up with a vet or whatever. Yeah. Right. So like, you know, Kershaw would go fishing with him or something like that or something like, you know, did they pair you with a vet while you painted? Like did some Dodgers, vet Justin Turner have to break out the watercolors? (laughs) No, I did. Maury Wills was in camp with us and I would always eat lunch with them. So that's, that's the guy they picked, but Justin Turner actually did. We did do a painting together. Um, him and Kinley Jansen and, uh, I think Jock was on there, Austin Barnes. Yeah, we did a painting for charity one time. Because like, I followed that offseason, I had an art exhibit at Dodger Stadium. And uh, they painted, you know, and we auctioned it off for, for the Dodgers Foundation. So it was cool. I was going to say, was there like a, I mean, I'm sure there was like a learning curve for you, but kind of how did you, did you just learn by trial and error? Were you, mm-hmm. did you read like, like books? Like how did, this is <laughs> your, your painting is your art is like really incredible. Like you're a really talented artist. And so you say that, um, you know, you, you painted getting like us, into this, which is not four, true. Four it years is true. ago. It, is true. Just, <laughs> it was it is true. I was awful. I'm awful. I was awful at art, like awful artist. Um, but the same reason I got to the big leagues, man, I just work non stop, like obsessive. And, like with baseball, I was obsessive since I was four. And it's like very hyper-focused. And same thing with art. I just kept working every single day at it. And it wasn't until a few months ago where I finally like felt a consistent, like this is my message I'm trying to convey in my art. This is my subject matter. This is my style. And, and it just t- took off. Um, and before that, I was just kind of wandering around, you know, making plenty of mistakes. I still make plenty of mistakes. I, I'm not afraid to throw a canvas away. Like, if people ever go by my dumpster in my studio, they'll maybe get a couple paintings out of there. But, like, I'm not afraid to make mistakes. And, yeah, I mean, like, you know, this morning I was up at 4 a.m. painting. So, like, I just work nonstop. Can you, I guess, just kind of wrapping up here, just kind of talk about where people can find that, where people can bid on that? I don't know if we have any secret... <laughs> Uh, art buyers listening to the podcast, but just kind of what you're doing with that now. I know um, a lot of the proceeds have been going towards different charities and whatnot over the last month or so. Um, so just kind of give like just give people the rundown on on kind of what you're doing up yeah, to right I mean, now. Much, and, yeah, like pretty much. I'm really focused on this space in the digital space. So um, with I don't know how much people are familiar with like the blockchain technology. They usually associate that with Bitcoin, but with the blockchain technology, you're able to store an immutable file that you know is permanent, um, and that gives a big that's a big space for card collectors, you know, memorabilia collectors, but also art collectors because now you can store your art on there with a specific ID, which makes it scarce and makes it um, a one of one. So, what I do is a lot of my paintings I then digitize and. So they're stored on there forever. Um, and then, you know, most of my physical paintings, I kind of, I sell those as well. Um, and right now I'm working on a really cool project with different athletes where I paint their portrait, send it to them, then they paint on it as well. And it's, these athletes aren't artistic at all. 
there's some like really cool athletes. And uh, I just say, you know, just paint whatever you feel like you want to paint. You know, no artistic abilities are needed to be an artist. So you just kind of f- be free about it. So that's coming out really soon. Uh, and I'm excited to share that with people. Wow, you're so you're in, you're inspiring the next Micah Johnsons out there in the in the sports world. <laughs> I'm telling you, these yeah, like these these players are like really enthusiastic about it. Now, I was always it's always been a dream of mine to do something like this, but uh, I was like always, always timid about it. But I reached out to some guys, and they were like, "Yeah," and now they hit me up all the time, like how excited they are about it. And it's all sports too, not just baseball. Um, and then what I'll be doing with that is digitizing that their works so we keep the originals digitize them and again they'll be on the blockchain people can collect them and, and buy them and it's really really cool has anybody really um wowed you with what they've what they've painted over top of your portrait or have they not gotten to that pro- stage of the process yet no they all wow me like the ideas and like how personal they get with this art think about it like you, anybody can collect cards like that's you know that's a readily available thing but how many people can say they collect art from you know, this athlete, you know, this yeah. MVP or this Cy Young winner or this, you know, Super Bowl champion, right? So like, it's such a unique thing because art is so personal and is so vulnerable. So when these athletes are expressing themselves through art, you're really gaining a, a part of that athlete's soul because they're putting it on the campus without signing like too much of like a stone or anything. But that's like truly like what it is, you know? So it's really, really cool. In- instead of asking um, athletes to uh, to get Twitter accounts and show their personalities, I think athletes should just all start painting. I'm not <laughs> right. just hearing the way you you talk about it. I'm like, damn, I I want a Cody Bellinger art now. Right, that's that's right. what I'm looking for. <laughs> Wait, you got to see some of these athletes, man. They're like the first one that might get out on Thursday, but uh, yeah, like it is very personal to him, man. Like and they take it really seriously, and you know a lot of them at the beginning are like, I'm not artistic. And I said, well, you know, Basquiat's painting sold for like $400 million and he drew stick figures. So like, (laughs) (laughs) there's no such thing as artistic. (laughs) Yeah. Well, like this is the absolute gold standard, the peak of what, um, what athletes could kind of put out in the world, like in terms of personal messages, you know, like something that they painted over. This is like basically like cameo, but actually cool. <laughs> Dude, they could <laughs> they could draw middle fingers and all they wanted to, man. That, that's how they feel. Or like they can draw, you know, whatever they want because it's how they feel, right? It's, yeah. it's the first time that like, you can't tell me somebody that if they paint something that that's wrong, right? Or you can't paint that. as long as it's personal, there's no rules. There's rules on social media. You can't say certain stuff. But with this, man, if you do it in a in a, in a way, you know, you can express yourself. So it's really cool and especially cool that it's in digital form because then you can collect them and you can store them. And like, like I, that, that piece I recently did um, with Matt Caesar was a, uh, we raised $24,000 for various organizations. And a lot of that was through the digital form. And we did an addition of 60 for $200 each. And immediately it sold out in like eight minutes. And right afterwards they were reselling for like 50 to 600, I mean, 500 to $600. So it's a, it's a fun market, man. <laughs> oh, man. You, you talking about those price points makes me want to get into the digital <laughs> art selling world. It'd be crazy. It's <laughs> crazy. Not podcast you, man. World, like, man. <laughs> it's crazy. If you can get one, like before it sells out, like you, it's two X or three X return. Like, cause it, people are collecting it, man. It's, it's, yeah. it's so much fun when they drop. Like, yeah. it's like, yeah, it's really fun. 
That's awesome. We'll we'll have to we'll have to put links to that in our in the description. So our, any of our listeners who are interested, you can go and go and check it out in the description. Yeah, any of our newfound art collector listeners. Micah, thank you so much for joining us, man. We really appreciate this. It's obviously great to hear your perspective on that that game in 2015, but I, I loved hearing about your art as well. So thanks so much for joining us here on Tipping Pitches. We really appreciate yeah. it. Man. Thanks, folks. Thank you so much to Micah Johnson. Great guest. Really interesting stuff with the art and the crypto art. Just oh something God. I would have never, literally never thought about. <laughs> absolutely not. I am, I'm fascinated by that now. I'm absolutely going to do more research into that once we get off this. Which baseball players do you think that he's going to send portraits to? And what do you think that they're going to gonna draw over top of it? You think he's <laughs> got one like coming back from, from Puig or maybe, maybe um, Kirsch? I think it's going to be completely out of the blue. Like I want to, I think it's going to be like Jeff Samarja, like, you know, what do you, let's see what Jeff Samarja has to do. Maybe something about how he's a two sport athlete and you know, how yeah, he his, draws like, he draws like football pads on his own shoulders. And yeah. Like, exactly. this is deep shit, man. This is it's, how I see myself still. It's the, it's the Bo Jackson photo, but it's Jeff Samarja with the, with the shoulder pads and the bat, you know? Yeah. That photo exists of Jeff Samarja. Not yeah, with the bat, I, but, with the yeah. long locks. My uh-huh. hair is going to be that length pretty soon. <laughs> I haven't had hair. Yeah, well, we're not going to talk about haircuts because that's become very political. But um, yeah, I mean, I it's so interesting to hear the firsthand perspective from Micah about how surreal that moment felt. And just how five years later, how different everything feels and how how much more we should expect from MLB and maybe how much more we should have been expecting at the time. Um, Cause it didn't even feel like it was a conversation on the broadcast. Like I mentioned, I was watching it this morning or in any of the articles that I read to just, just not play the game. Just don't play the game. Don't ask that of the players. Don't ask that of the coaches. Don't ask that of the stadium workers because so much was going on and it was all so complex with how the citizens of Baltimore were reacting to just violent and flagrant police brutality from the police department and the national guard there. Even Adam Jones, who has long been one of baseball's um, most outspoken players, Adam Jones, who now plays in Japan. um, He, he addressed it, but mostly to say, you know, there's a, there's righteous anger, but we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't ruin our city for this. Let's not, um, you know, that kind of like respectability politics, like, like peaceful, peaceful protest. Um, so it, it is interesting to kind of see the difference between um, a statement like what Adam Jones made, which was kind of the extent of the conversation around baseball. Um, and fast forward five years to today with so many players, like just straight up speaking their mind uh, on the issue of police brutality. I mean, it is, it is stunning that we are at the point that we are at. Like, I mean, the fact that we're having a legitimate nationwide conversation about the role of police in our society and if they should exist or not is just, I mean, that itself is beyond me. But, and so like, obviously I think it was inevitable that it would reach baseball and it would become so overwhelming that baseball just couldn't ignore it. 
Um, yeah. But but yeah, what an eerie moment in history. I mean, I I I think there is such a flattening of the conversation about every different topic in our world right now because so many of the conversations, especially when everybody is quarantined at home, social distancing, so many of our conversations are happening online. And because of that, every conversation exists side by side. They're all happening concurrently. The the labor negotiations in baseball right now, as Micah said, they're happening in the same timeline as people saying defund the police and black people in this in this country saying that they've been experiencing police brutality for since the inception of police the whole time and it is it is kind of that thing where i was i've just been thinking a lot about how these every athlete that we have now for the most part all of the younger guys every new guy comes up from a generation of of kids like you and me, our age, like we're the age of people who are starting to make their MLB debuts or who are starting to become two or three year veterans. We just talk about our politics openly. Like we just say it out loud and fuck whoever disagrees, I guess. Like that's just how we live. That's how we live our lives and how we live our world and how you and I do our podcast. And I don't know. I, I want to go back to that, that game really quickly and provide just some of the scheduling context. Um, because I think the knee-jerk reaction is to say, why didn't they just reschedule all the games? There was a three-game series um, that was supposed to happen Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, which was kind of at the height of the protests going on in Baltimore at the time. And they rescheduled the Monday and Tuesday games. And they said that they couldn't reschedule the third game because of they just couldn't find a day to do it on the schedule because they had already rescheduled the first two. They obviously had other days that were rescheduled, maybe for rainouts. And there's a clause in the CBA... I guess that says that you can only have a certain amount of days in a calendar year that are scheduled for makeup games. And I don't, I don't see why they couldn't have made a special exception that both sides agreed upon. Like that's how CBAs work, but alas. So they made the decision to go through and play the game with no fans. And when Manfred was asked about it, primarily when Manfred was asked about why no fans, he primarily said they wanted to keep the fans safe in the event that some kind of protest happened in the ballpark in a confined area and it turned any kind of violent. And then they also said they couldn't find enough police or national guard to staff the game, which, which reads to me like if there were less police there, it would have been safer in 2020. That's how I, how I read that Um, because the police were the ones beating protesters and releasing tear gas. But I, I wonder how this would happen now. And I wonder how this conversation will be playing out in the baseball world if baseball was going on right now. It's just so hard to say because the cynic in me just thinks that people would be asking about Jacob deGrom's changeup or slider rather than focusing on what's what's really happening in everybody's lives right now. It's it's kind of shocking to see that this was how they handled this. And then the 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 Orioles were supposed to play their next series at home against the Rays and they ended up just playing that in Tampa Bay. And part of me thinks that they would just cancel the games outright now, but I don't really know. I, I like it's the same commissioner, same people in charge. It's just five years removed. Yeah. But I think there's also there has been a lot more pressure from fans, I think, in holding like teams' feet to the fire. And it was it was a really unique situation in part because they were the only team really that was affected by this, you know? Um, and so 
I think it boiled down to a scheduling issue in part because like they couldn't they couldn't just stop while the rest of the teams just kind of moved Kept forward. Going. Yeah. Um and so it would be interesting to see now as every team, every player, every city has a stake in this conversation. And um and in that there is like some I don't know, protection for for players to be able to talk about this sort of thing. Um because it doesn't feel like this this isolated incident, this this protest that is limited to uh, this locale as part of the country or whatever. Yeah. Um, but like the more you dive into it, the more you realize it was kind of same shit, different day. Because you might think, why not play it in Washington, D.C., which is a 30-minute drive from Baltimore. And if you look into that, there's rumors, and it was reported in the Washington Post that the Nationals didn't want to let them play there because there was a current rights negotiation for revenue from their Masson contract, the Mid-Atlantic Sports Network. And so there was kind of cold shoulder between those two teams about allowing Baltimore to come play in the Nationals Park despite the fact that the Nationals were on the road this day. So it's just like, oh, we're having petty money arguments while there's much more serious things going on. What year is it again? Yeah, it's a different world that we're living in right now. Um but it's I, the exact same world we're I, living but, in right but now. Also, yeah, it's also the exact same. You know, I the other thing that I think about when I think about if baseball is happening right now, because there's been a lot of discussion with the return of the NBA, with players who are a lot more outspoken and are encouraged to be a lot more outspoken. And then the return of the NFL in the fall, especially after Commissioner Roger Goodell's statement saying that he would allow players to protest, I guess, but not actually saying Colin Kaepernick's name. That's a that's that's for when we start an NFL podcast, whatever. <laughs> I wonder, you know, like if baseball was happening right now, how players would be protesting, how they would be discussing these things. It's it's not just would they be making statements on Twitter. Being on TV every day is a platform. And we have a lot more discourse about platforms and platforming people and how you use your platform and how you use your voice. That is just a much more active conversation right now than it was in 2015. I don't know. You, you put together some research about different players throughout the, throughout baseball history who have protested and how they've done it, but lists not long, man, the list is not long. And the last one I can think of, and the only one I can think of in our lifetime is Bruce Maxwell. So I don't know what else do you have that, would maybe be like a guidebook for players if they come back and want to make a political statement. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I wanted this to be like a like a long segment, and um, <laughs> I I think that like you know who didn't want it to be a long segment, Rob Manfred. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I, and there's still actually I think a lot to mine here as you start to dig into the sport. Um, you can find these little pockets of players, and, and I think it's telling that a lot of their histories have been kind of wiped away. Um, and I mean, the, the obvious one that Major League Baseball loves to reference because they love to pat themselves on the back is Jackie Robinson, right? Um, but there's a reason that they mentioned Jackie Robinson's name and not Kurt Flood's name because Kurt Flood came out and refused to trade and called himself basically a well-paid slave and called their bullshit on the reserve clause. He basically said, I don't feel like um, I can just be bought and sold. 
I have no fucking rights. This goes against the 13th Amendment. And that is, I think, obviously the the gold standard for protests in baseball as if, I mean, if they're, if you can call it a gold standard, it's like, it's really awful that he felt the need to come out and speak about this stuff, but never, never in baseball and potentially just across sports. Have I seen a player like so plainly like state the obvious? It's not really hard. If you peel back even one layer of the onion to see why baseball pats themselves on the back about Jackie Robinson being the first black player to break the color barrier in sports and in baseball, but they don't pat themselves on the back for being the league that lost the reserve clause for other leagues. You know, like Kurt Flood's example in working with Marvin Miller in the early days of labor negotiations in baseball is an example that essentially cost owners a lot of money over the last eight decades, you know, and I'm sure that owners and commissioners in the front office hold a lot of resentment over the the labor motion, the labor movement that was put in motion by Kurt Flood speaking his mind and and standing up for what he believed was his right as a worker in this country and his right as a citizen in this country. And show me the day when MLB puts Kurt Flood's name in a statement or has Kurt Flood day. Yeah, I mean, he just fundamentally changed the changed sports in general. I mean, this man is like on the Mount Rushmore of like progressive La- labor icons. icons. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that I want I wanted to try to think about with 2015 versus now is how how can baseball act differently? How can they do a better job? But at the end of the day, like. All the stuff that we're asking for is small stuff. It, it's it's small potatoes compared to something like Kurt Flood, compared to making active change in the way that baseball operates in the world. You know, like if MLB comes out tomorrow, the day that we release this podcast, and is like, actually, we're going to reinvest in all communities that we are in, and we're going to put together a youth academy, and we're going to encourage black youth participation, and we're going to make baseball more accessible for for people who can't afford it, for people who can't afford the travel circuit, for people who can't afford perfect game, for people who can't afford a fucking bat for a little league, we're going to make it more accessible. You know, they're, they're, they're trying in certain ways and Mike, referenced the RBI program and I'm not going to act like that's nothing. I'm not going to act like MLB has never tried at all, but once that becomes their top priority, then I'll actually believe that they want to make change and want to listen to the different forms of protest that have happened throughout their history. Um, I don't know where I don't know what's next on your list, but I'm sure it's someone who hasn't gotten their due similar to Kurt Flood. Well, okay, I will. The next one on my list was going to be a name that you might be familiar. Do you know the guy Ted Williams? Um, he's oh wait, <laughs> Ted Williams. Uh, Ted, yeah, I think he's the Red Sox. If he's yeah, if he's not in the Hall of Fame, he should be. Um, uh, yeah, people don't know about him as much. Um, good, good contact guy. Good contact. Bat to ball skills. Yeah, I think he was I think he was all right at getting on base. Um Rhiannon Walker, uh formerly of the Undefeated, now of the Athletic, gave an interesting interview um on NPR a few years ago about just kind of a t- talking about activism in baseball specifically and why um why it's so lackluster um and just alluding to to how conservative the sport is. But 
Um, specifically, she brought up Ted Williams and the fact that he was constantly um, worried about people finding out that he was actually Mexican-American. Um, and and that being something that like he had to keep private. He had to keep secret. And when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame in his speech, um, it, this is in 1966, but he basically called out Major League Baseball for there being no black players in the Hall of Fame yet. And like he wanted to like advocate for these players who were so much like a real part of baseball history. Um, even though baseball has integrated itself at this point, it's still like they still have this uncomfortable relationship with the past. And that exists today. I mean, players who played in the Negro Leagues are essentially wiped clean from the, the history of baseball when you talk about it, despite the fact that some of baseball's best players of all time played in the Negro Leagues and were never given a chance to play in Major League Baseball. I mean, it's it's shameful. And to have a player like Ted Williams actually come and speak up on it, I think really did really did a lot. Um, and, you know, like Satchel Paige was eventually the first black player inducted in the Hall of Fame. So like he had sway. So prepare for this very negative reaction to what you just said and prepare for this very cynical take. But it's exceedingly clear to me that the structure of baseball, the way that it has been designed, the way its economic system works, and the way that even the, the actual sport, the 162-game season, is designed is sort of the antithesis of disruption, the antithesis of progress, because it's just so much for so long happening all the time. And each team has seven minor league teams and hundreds of players. And those players all have a long odds of making it to the majors so they don't feel empowered and emboldened to to speak their mind and step up like Micah was talking about. You know, he was in he had played less than 20 games in 2015 and and yet still somehow like is looking back five years later and saying that he feels embarrassed that he didn't speak up more about these types of things. Well like nothing about his baseball career would have ever encouraged him to do that. And just the very nature of baseball being like a slow burn, slow grind happening in conversation with Americana just makes it very hard for people to truly disrupt it because if Bruce Maxwell and I'm sure we're going to get to Bruce Maxwell in a minute but maybe we can just talk about him briefly here if Bruce Maxwell kneels for every A's game the majority of baseball fans are never going to see that (laughs) they're just never going to watch that because the majority of baseball fans are not watching A's games and they're not wow all right all right Come at me. Hate to break it to you, bro, but they have <laughs> one of the lowest, you know, like just it, it's not even just about the A's, you know, like if someone on the Mariners knelt during the national anthem, it'd be a big ass conversation in Seattle. It'd be a national conversation for a few weeks. But after a little while, people would get used to it, man. And people would because it's not in their face every Sunday. There's no concentrated time when everyone is paying attention to baseball. People are tuning in, tuning out. People are following their own team, not following another team. And people are that you only have so much bandwidth to pay attention to 162 games of your team. And then all of the other bandwidth has to be equally distributed among, I don't know, like going to the gym or taking care of your kids or keeping up your relationship or, you know, talking to your parents. Like it is like, I don't know if this is making any sense. I hope it is. But baseball's structure 
labor and on field is kind of anti-disruption, anti-progress. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's because, I mean, that, you know, as we talk about always, right, like teams are so, teams and fan bases are just kind of so atomized and in their own sphere that, yeah, like you were saying, this stuff, it just doesn't break through on a national level. There's never time. There's never time. We're playing so many fucking games. There's never time. And that's why this year might be that time. That's why more players are outspoken. I don't know if this is that time, but I hope, I hope it is. Yeah, we'll see. Um, I, I think that like a lot of the, the quote unquote, like protests that have been done throughout baseball history, um, are, are less active protests and more, I think people kind of trying to players trying to use the, the power that they do have that's afforded to them to try and instigate some sort of change. Right. So it's been less like taking the knee and more saying a quote to the media that, implies you be treated like a slave right or or trying to advocate for um the african-american players that basically hadn't been acknowledged by but baseball at that point right um there's one case that is really fascinating to me that i want to talk about a bit um that's uh sam nahem who uh was a was a jewish player he played in the in the 1940s and he was born to Syrian Jewish immigrants. He grew up speaking Arabic. Um, and also, he was a communist. So, shouts out to my fucking guy. Um, and supposedly, he was actually audited by the FBI um, because of his membership of the Communist Party. But, you know, that's a, <laughs> it's another story. Um, you don't want to do 20 minutes on the Red Scare? <laughs> um, God. But when he, like many other baseball players, uh, went to go fight in World War II, he assembled a racially integrated military team. And this is in 1945. His team um, that he puts together wins the, you know, the military GI World Series or whatever, um, playing against this all-white team. This is two years before Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier. Um, but he sees the way that um, he sees the way that uh, African American players are denigrated by their their white teammates or just by by his white teammates, and and he says fuck that. And he has that background too, right? I mean, like he is he is Jewish, he is Syrian, he speaks Arabic, um, and he's like that. That's that's bullshit, right? Um, and the fact that he was able to put together this racially integrated team, they, um, they play in Nuremberg stadium, which is where Hitler hosted his rallies. Like just the way that this could have potentially ostracized him, like not even just in baseball, but politically, generally a communist leading a racially integrated team in the place where Hitler would hold his rallies. Fuck dude. As a Jew. Yeah. Wow, that, that was I, incredible. I didn't know about this. Yeah. I didn't know No, about I didn't this. either. I wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why we haven't heard about that. Uh, see, that to me is that ideal that you and I share, that sports can matter. You know, sports can matter so much. Sports can do a lot. And I just feel like we've gotten so far away from that. Like collectively as as a baseball world where 
we don't treat sports as part of the American culture in that way anymore, as part of the political American culture. Like there's been an intentional aggressive campaign to depoliticize sports while it's also being conservative conservativeized. You know, like could 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 baseball have that impact? You know? Like if some if an if a player right now decided to make a, a, a strong political stance like that, do something I mean, obviously the the details of it would be very different because they're not going to be drafted to go fight in World War Three. God, hope not. Um, knock on wood. But if a player made a, a strongly political stance like that, where from very different avenues of his life he is has the chance to be ostracized for what he believes and who he is, I think it's also interesting to think about what we consider being a, a political statement and and what we don't. Because there's a lot of like rah rah pro America pro military um, sentiment in baseball and sports in general, but it's incredible in baseball, and and yet we don't consider that to be a political statement at all. Following nine eleven, you think about a moment in time when baseball players absolutely acknowledged the the outside world and went and to to go and help um visit first responders and visit families and to to start playing god bless america during the seventh inning stretch you know like these are these are political actions as well um that's a that's a that's a political statement that you're making whether you like it or not and it doesn't have to just mean like pro America, like I want to fuck the flag or whatever. But like <laughs> sometimes it does mean that. <laughs> sometimes it does mean that exactly. Um, but players would never be criticized for that because it's like, oh well, that's that's off limits. They're just doing they're just doing good for the country. And it's like, well, that's what that's what everyone's trying to do. That's what that's what these conversations are about. There is obviously a palatable version of political, and there's an unpalatable version of political, and. Um, listeners will not be shocked to know that that is a it's a racially charged it's it's a racially drawn line as to what's palatable and what's not palatable for baseball players to discuss among a lot of fans. Um, okay, what's what's next? Do we have a couple more on the list, or is it just Bruce Maxwell? The the last player I want to bring up that we don't talk about very much, and, and this actually this is. It's hard to even call this a political statement or a, or a protest or anything like that. But that's um, that's Glenn Burke, who who played for the Oakland A's and who came out as gay after his um, playing career was over. He also invented the high five. So dude was just like a fucking pioneer. <laughs> um, but but he said uh, in an interview, you know, he's like, it's harder to be gay in sports than anywhere else except maybe president and baseball is probably the hardest sport of all. Um, and this is in, this is in 1982 when he's having these discussions. I mean, you're kind of in the midst of the AIDS crisis. He would eventually um, die from AIDS, but he got mixed responses for that. Not everyone was about it. He supposedly in the clubhouse, like many of his teammates knew about it and were were okay with that and incredibly um, accepting about it. Burke wanted to um, wanted to go into like baseball management, right, and be in a be in a front office. And um, and a guy like Billy Martin, known as a raging asshole, right, 
would would introduce Glenn Burke by calling him the F word. And so there was like so, so much clear risk for him to do that. Um, and I think that his name ultimately just kind of gets washed away from, from the history books. And when you talk about like pioneers in baseball and pioneers in sports. Um, it's just kind of unbelievable how unaccepting baseball is. It's like <laughs> how strongly it's trying to hold on to this very specific vision of America. And it's just, especially taken in contrast to what you were just talking about with how the kind of fuck the flag nature of baseball today is so accepted and encouraged and frankly, like lauded by a lot of fans and fans would rather players be just Americans than being themselves. And when players being themselves aligns with being patriotic and even jingoistic, then fans are really okay with that. They're like, this dude is just being himself. He's just loving his country. And he's just inspiring passion, national pride. But then when someone is being themselves about anything else, it doesn't even have to be political. In this case, we're talking about political things. But when someone is being themselves in a different respect, fans don't want to hear that. And that sucks. And I think that there's a general failure on the part of baseball leadership to say if you're that type of fan get out because these these things are not they don't exist in vacuums fans push and pull and they react and respond to what the climate is and you see it wasn't cool for NBA players in the 90s to come out and make really strong statements but guess what people in the front office players were at the forefront of this conversation and they changed the attitude of NBA fan bases they changed how NBA players are able to exist in this world and are able to be themselves personally. And I don't feel like baseball has done that. I don't feel like it's tried. And it just makes me so sad to hear that about Glenn Burke and to hear that his aspirations in the game of baseball were stamped out because of who he is. It's just, that is, that is baseball. And I don't know if that's changing. This is certainly an opportunity for them to grapple with a lot of those things because of, a, a number of factors because of because of nationwide protests because of the idea that it's incumbent upon brands and leagues and and companies to address these things internally and externally um but i don't know if in 2 years we're going to be saying that mlb figured it out or in 10 years i don't know no i i i don't think so but it does feel like we're at a very pivotal moment right now um, and I really am hoping that this provides, a, I think, an opportunity for players, if not if not the league in general or the teams, but where players feel like they can come and speak out and be supported um, by people. And obviously, like it's a much more conservative white fan base, but there, I think, has been a lot of support from fans um, to players who actually are talking about what's going on in the country right now and like good honestly yeah if you want to if you want to follow in sam nahum's footsteps and join the communist party next like i'll back you on that too okay alex i teased at the top of the show that we were going to talk about a labor catch-up um 
we're just we're just out of time. Nobody needs to hear this right now. Here's the here's the catch up. MLB has proposed the same thing four straight times, and the players union the players union has rejected it all four times. And where we stand now is the players said, you know what, fuck it, pay pay us our prorated salary for as few games as you want. I don't care. Just tell us when and where we'll be there, and we'll get back to the table next year. And you're getting the the fire of seven hells or whatever. Yeah, owners owners think the players are stupid at this point. They're just, they're just like wrapping the Not same just thing the players, in different. They think the fucking fans are stupid. Yeah, uh-huh. and a lot of fans are stupid. I don't know. We're we're not going to get into like the the bootlicker reply guys, but that's a that's yeah, been but, a real thing going on in the last couple of months. But they're dying out. You know, it has. Literally. I actually and and like Micah was saying, I think that like fans are kind of starting to to wake up to that a little bit and understanding like which side they should be on. Um, Twitter isn't real life, but I think you're seeing more and more people be like, owners just fucking suck it up. Like, take the L, pay the players what you said you would pay them, and let's play some baseball. Um, we'll see where that nets out, but I don't know. This is this is your chance, man. Hop in the anti-owner bandwagon. It's now or never. All aboard, baby. One for all. We got room here. Bash the owners. In five years, when everybody is bashing owners, you're going to wish you were on the bandwagon now. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> uh, okay. We'll, we'll, more on obviously labor negotiations and what agreement the teams and players come to uh, next week because I don't think it's all going to get solved between this episode and next week's episode. So we'll, we'll have oh, really? You don't think they're just going to actually. New CBA come and everything. We'll just figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, more on that next week. But, you know, thank you so much for listening. We hope that you got a lot out of the conversation from Micah because we did. We really appreciate his time and check go check out his art, all of his the links and stuff where you can go find some of that stuff, the cool stuff that he was talking about. That'll be in the description. And if you want to identify which players you think are most likely to get the old sign up for the old Communist Party of America, please DM them or email them to us, tipping underscore pitches on Twitter, tipping pitches pod at gmail.com. Yeah, uh, if, if you if there are any protests, because I'm sure there are many that um, that I missed. I mean, we only just scratched the tip of the iceberg there. Um, but if there are players that you think are are kind of worth talking about, who who have made political statements in the past, or, or really whatever it is, honestly, whatever comes to your mind, um, send them our way because I know that we would both love to to hear about that, and I'm sure the listeners would as well. Thanks for sticking with us. Um, don't forget to to go to all those donation links. Please, if you can, just sign up for recurring donations or continue to find new organizations that you think are meaningful or people who are doing on the ground work who you can Venmo or Cash App or uh, PayPal or whatever is the easiest way. There are so many ways to help from home if you can't be out protesting, if you can be out protesting. Um, and I, I know a lot of our listeners already know that stuff, so it's it's nothing new hearing it from from two stupid dudes doing a podcast, but... Um, we don't we don't want to lose sight of what's more important than baseball right now which is like basically everything thanks for listening we'll uh, we'll be back next week